Hey everybody, welcome to another podcast with Cribs. Before we get into our next guest, I just want to remind you that if you are looking for an investment property, looking for the next high growth market and want to know how to secure that good quality asset, you need to talk to me and the team. We are looking across the whole Australian Eastern Seaboard, only work with the best developers in the industry, can help you secure that asset, do the cash flows, have a good understanding about where you're going to find that growth. So ultimately, secure that investment and keep on building that fantastic portfolio to achieve the long-term dreams. Reach out to the team, have a chat to me, and let's get into this next show. Hey guys, Dominic Neshi here from Cribs. Today, I am very, very lucky. We are very, very lucky to have James McIntosh from Looty Consulting. Have I said that correctly? That is correct. Now, James is going to be talking to us today about the interaction between transport investments and the surrounding land markets. He is a qualified professional that's been doing this for 20 plus years. He um, is a, uh, an industry rep talking about transport planning. He's a registered cadastral surveyor. He's got a PhD from Curtin University in sustainability and policy. Um, working specifically for comprehensive assessment framework for valuing transport infrastructure projects. That's a mouthful, mate. Mate, that was hard to get through. <laughs> um, can you look? I, I made a, an absolute mess of that. Could you give us a little bit more about yourself and and effectively what you work on in this consultancy capacity? Sure, no problem. So, I started off many years ago working as a, a land surveyor. So we used to do subdivisions, and we put some of the first pegs in the ground in Kellyville way back when in the early nineties. And then uh, over time, I've evolved working for different consultancies, engineering firms, and then I uh, sort of broadened into development planning. Um, we did a lot of major development subdivisions for government and for, uh, for other organisations, but predominantly changed career in oh, probably 10, 15 years ago and headed more into... I suppose strategic infrastructure planning because I was working for an engineering firm, got more heavily involved in transport planning, transport infrastructure, did my master's at Sydney Uni in transport economics and then um, blended my land development planning, my transport economics and a broader interest in the interaction space around infrastructure investment and wound up doing a PhD in it. And when we got out the back end of that, set up my business partner and I set up our own firm, really looking really at urban economic impacts of infrastructure investment on Australian cities. And we've built models all up and down the eastern seaboard in southeast Queensland, in New South Wales. We built one in WA when we were there, and we've also built one in Auckland. And we really focus on government strategic investments and how the productivity increases, particularly in the commercial spaces around agglomeration benefits and other sort of targeted uh, productivity benefits in that space, but also how it unlocks the capacity for change in these land markets around there. So when we see different investments monetized differently into different markets, so what we wind up doing is providing advice to government on how to optimise the productivity and urban city shaping benefits out of their projects. So, yeah, we've, we've done a lot of metros, light rails, motorways, all sorts of things. And, and when people say, how does transport infrastructure monetise and how does it change markets? Well, all things change markets differently. So I think it's, 
you can never turn around and say, oh, I'm going to go through and build this thing and I will get the same outcome that I got somewhere else because it doesn't, doesn't work like that. Everything's bespoke. Everything has to be to their own individual markets. So obviously Sydney's not Brisbane. It's sure as hell not Canberra. It's not Gold Coast. It's Sydney. And Sydney has a history of being developed over time around specific investments. So rail in Sydney has a very pedestrian-oriented um, focus on it. So people live around rail, transit-oriented development. You get more density around rail because people access rail through walking to it. Whereas yep. in Perth, totally different. People access rail by feeder bells. So the majority, so for the Mandra line there, 70, 70% of people access that rail line by catching a bus to it. So there really isn't any transit-oriented development because you can live miles away and just catch the bus to the train station. So things monetize differently because the transport model and the transport planning around it um, impacts different sub-markets and catchments differently. So you're also watching the behaviours of these different markets and the way that they interact and engage with the mm. types of transport infrastructure, or not just transport, but different types of infrastructure. Yeah, definitely. So we build um, a lot of uh, what are called revealed preference models. So we don't go and ask you what you think. We look at how you spend your money. So what we do is we build what are called hedonic price models and other other econometric models that look all the different factors that impact land value or government-assessed land value. And we have models that have you know, somewhere between 20 and 30 or 40 different variables in there that explain it and part of its accessibility. And to give you an example, in Sydney, if you are within uh, 200 metres of a motorway, the monetization of the negative externalities of noise and particulate matter and drive, we know, drive property value down between 12 and 15%. That's interesting. So you've just said that people that are next to highways or major motorways, the values go down. Correct, because it's noisy. It's not nice. I, when I lived in Sydney, I lived on Cleveland Street for a while, and which is a couple of blocks away from here, and the trucks come down the, down the hill at... Four o'clock in the morning on a Monday with the big service trucks, and it religiously wakes everyone up anywhere near that. Yeah. So, so it's that noise impacts. But if you live a block away, away from the noise, it was a nicer place to live. You still had the same urban environment, but you didn't have the negative impacts of being near uh, near a busy road. I want to ask you some questions about the different types of infrastructure and how that affects pricing. Sure. But before we get there, can I just reverse back a second? Mm -hmm. And I'd like to ask you about how government goes about justifying to create different transport. Now, uh, that, that sounds almost obvious, you know, population constraints or whatever. But, but obviously, it's a lot more detailed than just, hey, we think that population is going to increase. Because if you build a certain type of train or bus or uh, transport infrastructure in a section, then that changes um, zoning and then that means it changes the population and so on and so forth. But I'd love to hear your opinion on how government justifies creating transport infrastructure. Sure. So there are plenty of examples where government have built things and haven't followed through with the city shaping planning for that and this is an ad hoc incremental and they don't tend to realise the benefits that they'd intended. But with modern uh, business cases, and I say that over the last sort of probably five to ten years, business cases and investment decisions hinge more off the urban economic impacts than they do off the transport benefits. 
So historically, you would invest in a transport project focusing around people saving time. So travel time savings drove the investment. What we see now with projects like, say, Metro Northwest, for instance, it was going into an established market there, which, yeah, it was extremely busy and highly congested road network, and it was really coming in to solve the transport problem. But it also had massive city shaping outcomes. So you had, you know, huge transformational precinct strategies at places like, you know, whether it's Showgrounds or Cherry Brook or, or even look at what's happening out at Metro Northwest out at um, Tullawong. And it is a it is now a, a really important part of the justification of a business case is to actually say how do we optimise not only the transport outcomes, but how do we optimise the city shaping outcomes? How do we shape our city around our investments rather than just letting, you know, and no offence to the greenfield developers because they're doing a great job delivering what the market desires, but going and saying what do we want our city to look like? What, how do we want our city to grow in such a way that we're not creating problems for the future? Are you referring to in some way to the 2036 strategy where they're saying we want to shape the city in this specific way? You've got City CBD, Parramatta, Liverpool, and they want people to be 30 minutes from transport, but then we anticipate, you know, these structural changes. This is going to be the logistics, that's medical precinct. Is that mm. kind of what you're alluding to? Well, to a certain extent, yes. I mean, like the the Greater Sydney Commission have their three cities strategy, so the, the eastern city, the central city, and the western city. and. The Western City is hubbing around the um, employment opportunities and the growth opportunities west of Liverpool going into the Western Sydney International Airport corridor and that whole region out in there around the Aerotropolis. So the premise is is that there will be bespoke employment opportunities from the Wesier or the Western Sydney employment lands spreading in there and so there will be a whole series of different and new uh, job opportunities in that area so the population will grow it won't need to go to the eastern seaboard to go through and you know travel that hour and a half each way to get into the cbd to go and work that there will be meaningful and appropriate employment um, in the western parkland city you do see now a massive transformation i mean i don't know if you went to Parramatta. 20 years ago, but mm. you look at it now. I mean, look at the coffee. I always judge places on the quality of the coffee, and the coffee in Paramount is actually really good these days. Yeah. And even probably, I'd say probably eight years ago, it was a bit dicey. Like, you'd go out for coffee and be like, oh, I'm not finishing it. But now, you, you, and I think it's the... Co- Paramount is becoming more cosmopolitan. You do see all the big four, so EY, PwC, Deloitte, and KPMG, all have large offices there. And the irony is, is that it's not because it's cheap office space. They're there because they have active markets that they're working on. So there's major government clients out in Paramount now, there's major commercial clients, and you do see the market following this economic activity out there. And you're also seeing the para, you know the growth and the, the change in Parramatta's role as being a central city in terms of its employment, following up with Parramatta Light Rail and now Sydney Metro West. So you are seeing this this infrastructure following, but the catalytic nature of of government's um, intentions for Parramatta, you are seeing it being realised now. It's interesting you say a lot of that. There's so much to digest out of what you've just said, because, but I want to touch on the one thing, mm. um, paying attention to the changing scape according to retail, or as you said, coffee. Mm. You know, yeah. I, I, I've 
gone to many regional areas. For instance, Newcastle is an area that I liked. Mm. And you could see how coffee's changed over time. How Absolutely. you can see how um, retail trade starts to increase. And mm. you can see like the changing... So the population increases, or not increases, but changes over time, where there's yeah. higher incomes coming to the area, Absolutely. better retail shops, better cars, Audi starts, Audi, you know, Audi starts, BMWs there, and it just, you can see, and there's a sense in a change in the area in those different locations. Now, I'd like to now ask you about how, back to the previous, to the first question, which is how different transport infrastructure projects affect surrounding areas. Sure. Now, earlier you said that by having a, uh, a main road or a motorway, it can have some negative impacts on property prices within the immediate vicinity. Absolutely. Have you got some comments on rail or metro or light rail and how that impacts the immediate vicinity? Mm. And well, let's just start, let's start with commercial activity, if we may. Sure. So when you invest in transport infrastructure, it's usually got a set of objectives, reinforcing commercial activity centres, reinforcing uh, growth strategies, reinforcing desired future outcomes for that part of the city. And when we think about um, investing in something like a project like Sydney Metro West, um, it, it connects the Parramatta CBD, but it also connects to Sydney Olympic Park. It will connect to the bays. It connects the Sydney CBD. And it obviously goes out to Westmead and reinforces the whole the whole massive opportunity that's out there. The metro will connect possibly some of the most um, amazing opportunities in Australia in terms of commercial activities and bespoke. So with Westmead, you have a really strong medical focus. It's going to become an amazing um, international medical precinct um, that will be reinforced by metro. You obviously have Parramatta, which we just spoke about, doing what it does. Sydney Olympic Park and SOPA have their amazing vision for what that's going to become. SOPA? And, sorry? Uh, the Sydney Olympic Park uh, Business Authority. Oh, okay, their, yep. The whole, the whole precinct there, and they have their vision for that. And then obviously when you come to the bays, um, which is White Bay, Granny. Um, Blackwater, um, yeah. All that. So so when, when that has a metro to it, it will catalytically change what the commercial and... and job opportunities are in those areas. So the transport's being brought into these areas to, to reinforce the vision that government has for them. And it's really interesting because public transport infrastructure in particular isn't valued by all markets equally. So high-end um, white-collar employment, high-end knowledge-based employment. Um, NIMBY areas, not in my neighbourhood, sort of. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. It, it is it, white-collar employment love being near, near metros yeah. and, and rail. Um, industrial markets we know really don't give two hoots about public transport because most people have to drive there in some form of vehicle. I see what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. So, so what you do see in this is that you see... Um, Places like uh, a perfect example probably is going to be the bays. The bays, if you tried to serve and grow the bays precinct um, without high-quality mass transit to it, you would get, one, you're not going to get very many if any of the big commercials want to move in there. And secondly, you're probably not going to get anywhere near the same development outcomes because Anzac Bridge is full. Now you walk over there and it's a car park and, and it will be in the future. And Victoria Road's full. 
So to be able to access and egress from the site, you do need a modal alternative. And you think about what it would mean for White Bay connected to within two minutes to Martin Place. I mean, that's, that's spreading Barangaroo literally west a couple of k's and dropping it there. So your access into the city will be amazing. So commercial activity will follow accessibility. It needs other things. You can't just turn around and say, oh, I have this vision that this is going to happen. You're like, well, where's your realisation strategy and where are you building from? What's your reason for this? So it doesn't, you just don't think about it and it happens. It has to have a whole implementation strategy around that. Okay, that's super interesting to, and it makes so much sense when you've got an area that's effectively locked, can't get in or out. I even think about Five Dock. Yeah, it's yeah. difficult to get in and out of our Five Dock. So now that people can access it more quickly, it just makes sense that there's going to be people there and then it opens up commercial opportunities. And, and that comes with its own issues as well because you mentioned NIMBYism and no offence to the people in Five Dock, and Five Dock's lovely for what Five Dock is. Yeah. But the people in Five Dock don't want Five Dock to become Burwood. <laughs> so this is one of the real challenges, is that um, we have worked on projects where there is an active campaign for the infrastructure not to be built. Oh, the North Shore's kind of... That's yeah. another one. <laughs> yeah, uh, look, yeah. Let, let's let's not point fingers. But no, we won't. It, no, no, but it, jokes aside, and it wasn't even in New South Wales, but there has been active campaigns to stop projects because people don't want density. Mm. And it is a really hard thing that when you say to people, we are transforming the accessibility to this region and a key region, reason for doing that is to, you know, A, the people that are living here to get um, better accessibility, but B to enable more people to move here so they can get all the good urban environment outcomes and be within close proximity to employment and other things. And there are a significant number of regions in all cities that don't really want to change. Some places everyone's like, you know, God, please do something here. This is terrible. We're ready for change. But in some places they're not. And again, five dogs is one of those places that if you look, it's a ubiquitous built form. Mm. There's not much density there. Um, it's not to say that it couldn't happen and won't happen, but it is more challenging than, in, than if you went somewhere like, you know, the central to Everly precinct through here where we are at the moment. You look at some of these areas here I and mean, there's a huge potential for change to go from some land uses that may not be highest and best use anymore and then catalytically an investment is made and that transforms the opportunity for change. And I think Waterloo is probably that as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. If you have a look at the plans for Redfern, this whole Everly precinct, it's mm. cover over the rail, parklands, towers, it's incredible. And as you mm. said, Waterloo again. So a bit of a segue, you were just talking about, um, I think you alluded to zoning and population increases. Mm. Um, when transport infrastructure comes in, is it fair to say that government then follows suit and says, well, now there's a accessibility tick. Mm. How do we increase the number of people? Mm. Um, well, how do we house more people? Is that when we then see the changes to zoning and um, you know increasing zoning or changing zoning? And can we chat a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So, look, on that, I mean, one of the big things that um, every developer will have been through is that when you are putting a DA in, they ask you to go and do a traffic impact assessment. How are you going to impact all the markets around you? Well, how are the inter intersections going to work? How is this going to, you know, how is your development going to impact everyone else? Um, and quite often you have to engage a, 
you know, nice, friendly local traffic engineer who will turn around and model in Sidra what all the intersections are going to perform and they're like, oh, this is going to impact this one. So you're asked then subsequently to go and invest in an upgrade to the intersection and then your development's allowed to go ahead. Uh, transformative infrastructure like metros and, and even light rail to a certain extent has a reverse role. So rather than your development creating a transport impact, the investment in infrastructure creates a development opportunity. Mm-hmm. And fundamentally what that means is that it means that if you invest billions and in some cases ten, tens of billions of dollars in infrastructure and locations, it creates massive opportunities for growth. And current markets in those in some of those cases will not be set up for what a metro or, or mass transit view of what highest and best use is. So you need to go through, look at the opportunities for change and the constraints to change in these markets and do some bespoke work around that and look at where there are opportunities for change, look at what the planning controls are in the area, look at what the vision is, and then understand how much capacity you are actually unlocking in these markets. Rezone to highest and best use, so change it maybe from industrial over to mixed use or resi, and then look at the, the allowable FSR, so if it's a 0.5, so everyone's sitting in you know, single detached houses, you know, maybe it is appropriate to go to FSR 1.5 or something like that and go to four-storey walk-ups. It has to be bespoke. It has to be in keeping with the character of the area mm. because I think one of the things that people are extremely reluctant about is to say, oh, we used to live here and it was great and now everything's completely changed and all the good bits are gone. That's not the role of city shaping infrastructure. It's trying to increase everything to its highest and best outcomes. Mm. And I think um, if done properly and if done well, I think you look at some of the precinct planning, and again, this is a personal view, but some of the precinct planning done for Northwest I think was really good. Mm. And I think some of the things that they have, yes, there is some density there, but you you look at some of those precincts and some of those areas and I think the density levels are appropriate. Yeah, some people, you're not going to please everybody, right? And Absolutely. and and certainly what, what I've experienced because I've worked in development is the loudest people don't necessarily represent the majority either. They're the ones with the most amount of time. Yes, that's right. And their worldview may not reflect the changing way or the, the changing economy or the changing... Yeah. Uh, local area um, and it's just interesting to see because oftentimes I, I've noticed that people will complain but then it comes in and then the complaints go away or they've noticed hey this is nice I like this new amenity or mm. isn't it great that Woolies can now is a three minute walk away because they can justify having a store here yeah look at Schofields amazing you know, who would have thought that they would have had the scale of uh, of retail at a place like Schofields, and yet it's transformed that area. So, I mean, I, I completely agree. And, and I think one of the things that um, transformative infrastructure does, it it's not always invested in for the people that, that are there today. It's mm. invested for change. It's in, invested for growth. And arguably, if you make an investment in an area that costs billions of dollars to go through and put in there you are looking for catalytic change in the urban markets to try and realize the best outcome 
And this is this is really one of the key drivers of investments in infrastructure these days is that the three main buckets of benefits that we look for, we look for transport benefits, saving people time, reducing future congestion and other things, but then predominantly looking at what are the urban development benefits and the city shaping benefits that you can get out of this. So how are we unlocking the capacity for these markets to change? And then what is, does that change have a nexus to our project? And then what are the productivity benefits? How are we driving um, places like Sydney to become more productive off the back of the investment? And they are, they are the real decisions that drive um, economic investments in infrastructure. So this show really is to help people make wise decisions when picking strategic places to invest. Mm. One of our core philosophies and mantras is to follow key investments in infrastructure because we can see that, as you said, there's catalytic changes. You can see there's uh, population increases and, and um, it's, it's I've firsthand witnessed the effect of seeing a train or a new motorway or you know different transport infrastructure when it comes in, seeing the, cha- the changes in shops and retail and commercial and people's lives getting better. Mm. Um, there are some investors that are more strategic and take a longer-term view with these types of transport infrastructure. Sure. Because obviously it doesn't happen in a year or two years. It's typically five, six, ten years. Yep. And it can be difficult to kind of scope what types of investments you want to make in those areas. So I'm just trying to lay the groundwork here. Yeah, yeah. Some investors prefer to get into um, brand new investments like uh, apartments, townhouses, brand new homes, yep. which is fine, green fields and then towers. Mm-hmm. And then there are other investors that take, as I said, a longer term perspective and might want to land bank or buy homes on fringes where they're trying to be opportunistic and watch to see where there might be changes in zoning. Mm-hmm. Um, can you help me understand a little bit more about zone changes? Yep. And is there a typical path? Is there, you know, something that people can be mindful of? Are they looking for, you know, industrial might turn to resi or R2 will become R3 or for people that aren't across this, R2 is like low density, moving to medium density and medium turning to high density. Is there a path that people can be mindful of? And what are the key things that they should be mindful of if they are looking to make a 10-year investment or 15-year investment? Sure. So there's, there's two real sides to this. There's, there's a demand side, so there's a price impact of demand, and then there's a capacity. So what you will see is um, predominantly in, a, in an Australian market, and it's changed quite a lot, but it is now you do see that developers in the main will wait for um, a funding commitment or commencement of construction and that's where you see the surety coming into the market. They are building it. They're not going to walk away from it at some stage. We're going to have, you know, a, a hectare of industrial land that I, you know, really wanted to turn into a, uh, a new precinct um, just sitting there as industrial land sitting there forever and I've, I've done my die. So what, they do, what you see in the modelling is you actually see the development markets generally holding off until they get a funding commitment and that's when you see the big change. You see demand and you see a price impact of people going, it is happening, I do want to be there. And that's when you see um, pretty significant price impacts. Where you see the biggest differences, though, are where the government starts to really start talking about going through and rezoning and 
there have been a whole series of great examples of this, but in integrated land use and transport planning, what we look is we look at is um, how you can integrate the thinking and the practices around transport unlocking the capacity for change, and then you would wait, and then you would see government going through and producing precinct strategies and plans and other things like that to go through and realise the opportunity that's created. And I think for um, for your listeners, probably the, the biggest thing in this is that um, in most Australian cities these days, if you are investing in a big piece of kit, whether it's a... You know, and all of them are expensive. Nothing's cheap. So if you're going to spend hundreds of millions, if not tens of billions of dollars on infrastructure, there will be change in the markets. And what we see is the markets move of people take a leading impact and say, okay, I'm going to get in, this is coming, I'm going to, as you say, whether it's land banking or I want to get into this market because I know things are going to change. So you see a price impact or from project surety through and then once the project's been operational, you see the demand tend to, fl- tend to level out and that this change in demand for wanting to be in these areas. And it, and it can vary. You know, you see some, some projects having a 5 or 10% impact, some having a 20 or 30% impact. In some mm. cases, if it is really transformative stuff, you could see 100% change in, in demand in, in land value simply because the market is pricing in these big changes. What you will see, though, as far as the benefits realisation, you will see coming later the, the precinct strategies, the other things to realise. So government makes sure that they realise the opportunity that they've created. So... In the shorter term, um, you will see developers and others go, okay, you've rezoned this you know, corner block in, uh, in Castle Hill from single detached R2 um, up to, you know, I don't know, whether it's you know, MX5 or something like that. And one of them, and there's a classic thing, if, if you look it up on this Sydney Morning Herald website, there was a lady who, who'd lived in the house since the 80s and... The precinct strategy rezoned um, her block, um, and it went from uh, went from being a single detached house on twelve hundred square meters to being worth, I think, a developer after twelve million or something for a, for a block of land. Right, a lot of yeah, yeah. Well, it, it feels like that to people. It feels random, but it's not random at all. It's basically government has viewed this as unlocking. This is where we want to shape our city. This is where we want people to live. So. They are not car dependent and they can get to key employment centres and we want density here. But what developers also see is is an opportunity. So they go, okay, they do the residual land value calculations. They go, okay, I can sell an apartment in this precinct by whatever it is. I don't know, pick pick a number, something random. And they work backwards from that and then they say, okay, then the land to me, when I build my margins and finance and everything else, my margin is this. Therefore, I can I can afford to pay this amount of land. So that increase in development potential in response to the infrastructure drives a massive change in land market price, and that's why you see you know all up and down all these mass transit projects, these huge prices going for some of these um, these sites, and someone would have had a a house that was sitting there, and they're like, I could still live here as a house. It still works as a house. It's fine. But if I sell it, a developer's going to come and put eight-storey apartment block on it 
And to him, it's worth a hell of a lot more than the house. Mm. So the built form, the house on there has, has no value and all the value is monetized into the land. Yeah, your tomato patch needs to go. We want to build 15 stories on it. And you see, you know, you see grandma who's been in there for a very long time, who's very happy there, having all her relatives knocking on her door and offering to move her to the Gold Coast because there is a benefit, <laughs> there, is a, there is something to be realised. And, and, and it happens quite regularly. And whether it's, you know, orange orchards in Western Australia or it's, the Northwest Priority Growth Area, or you see, you see rezonings impacting dramatically impacting land market price and people's willingness to pay. Mm. So what you do see though is strategic infrastructure needs to keep pace with it, or you are moving people to areas where they are going to be car dependent, and over time the cost of congestion will drive property value down so much because no one will want to live there. Mm. I mean, Richmond Road and Windsor Road before the metro, and even now they're still pretty tough, but before that, they were a car park for, you know, 18 of 24 hours a day, and you're a long way from the sun out there too, so you've got a long drive mm. from, from Sydney or even North Sydney back. So as congestion builds, as more development in Marsden Park and the, and the Northwest Growth Centre occurs, without the strategic infrastructure to reinforce that, be it the metro, it just builds congestion, and, you, and it's unavoidable. You cannot go. You cannot live out there, and like if you sat on a bus and went to the city, on a bus from out there, it would have taken you forever, and it would have, it would have been quicker to drive. But generally, congestion will get you to a point that you don't want to be there anymore. So, James, on that, what areas do you like? Are you allowed to say without you know without giving away anything confidential? What are some areas? Let's just say around Sydney that you like, and then if you know anything about Melbourne and Brisbane, that's great. But I'm happy with just Sydney because there's a lot of Sydney listeners here. Yeah. Oh, places that I like. I like, you know, I used to live here in, yeah. in Chippendale and I, I like being here. I liked being here in the early 90s, even though we, we had huge crime problems and everything else because it was close to town. And But you look at the gentrification of this area and the gritty bits have become better. The bad bits are, 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 are almost gone. But if I was, you know... If I was a developer or an investor or or whatever, um, you look at what the transport for New South Wales and um, Andrew Constance, the minister, has done an amazing job in, and Gladys Berejiklian and Mike Baird before, have done an amazing job driving change in New South Wales, but particularly in Sydney. And these investments are changing Sydney before your eyes. Like, you, you know, I... I, have, I don't actually live in Sydney anymore. I pass through nearly every week. But it is one of these things that you you watch Sydney changing in front of your eyes and changing for the better, I will say, absolutely, absolutely for the better. And whilst these big infrastructure investments come at a huge cost, they are delivering enormous future benefits for Sydney. So where... I was putting pegs in the ground in Castle Hill and uh, in Kellyville in the early '90s as a you know as an undergraduate surveyor way back when, and you know it was a long way to drive out there, and you go and put the pegs in the ground, you come all the way back, and we were working in Moines at the time. But you go out there now, and it's just it's a different world. I mean, you, you look at Kellyville now, and you just it's astonishing, mm. and the metro will reinforce that you know, transformative uh, impact on these markets that people 
A, want to be there. There is potential for change. So you will see developers, you know, literally pulling houses down of things that from subdivisions that we put in the ground in the in the late 80s and early 90s, they're pulling them up now and putting greater density, different you know, city-shaping outcomes out there simply because the potential has been created by the investment in the metro. I completely agree. Mm. But if you look really, I think, at, at where Sydney's going and, you know... I just take my hat off to the government and what they've continued to do to continue to invest in strategic infrastructure and tried wherever possible for Department of Planning to keep pace with them, to keep the rezonings coming, to keep the growth strategies coming. I think what you're seeing is a future growth potential for Sydney in for the next, you know, potentially the next 50 years worth of growth because Sydney Sydney literally grows in a million people per decade. Mm. That's a scary thing that when <laughs> when I last lived here you know and lived here for a long period of time in the 90s you know one and a half to two million people have moved to this town it's a lot of people it We're is a lot of people and and it's a great town it's a great town it's you know and if if my wife w- would permit we'd be living here again but it is one of these things that we we love Sydney and we love Sydney for its good bits but the, but the hard bits of Sydney are, you know, property prices and congestion and, and, and the difficulty in getting around. These government investments are, you know, driving greater opportunity for growth. So that increase in supply will impact price. Mm. Um, it's the congestion, future congestion busting infrastructure means that as people grow, as Sydney grows, people won't have to... The, the choice won't be where am I, how am I going to drive around. The choice will be I could live, you know, in a, in a location where one or both parents may actually be able to get to work um, on public transport. And in some cases you might find, you know, effectively these communities that are growing around this, uh, this infrastructure now, you will see as time goes, as time goes on that they will, they'll become self-fulfilling uh, communities of their own and the the future years you won't have this continuing growth in in per capita congestion as as sydney gets bigger which you'll see is and you know more people moving to sydney not driving everywhere they will use public transport for one or more of their trips during the day so i, I i'm extremely excited about sydney i think it's a, a fantastic town and i actually think you know they are building roads and that's important too. Um, I think when you look at the heavy lifting that the road network does in Sydney, particularly the surface roads, that's why you see these negative impacts because main roads and so a lot of the inner urban roads like Parramatta Road and you know all the road network around here, even Regent Street and, and Cleveland Street, these are busy, noisy roads most of 24 hours a day. Like, they just don't stop. They don't get quiet. No. They don't get quiet. And if you want to sit outside and have a coffee or, or a glass of something else at the end of your day and you sit out in your patio and all you can hear is trucks with their air brakes going up and down Parramatta Road, you're like, yeah, this isn't really the urban ambience that I was seeking right now. So it's that, that negative imp- impact of traffic noise and transport noise on... People's mar- uh, on people's living standards 
that that's why that drives price down. Well, hopefully, hopefully we'll um, have some more electric cars out there soon. So then they'll be a little quieter, and that's probably a, a conversation for another time. I could I could talk about this all day, mm. but um, James, it really sounds like you're an advocate for Sydney. You really, it sounds like you have a future state in mind, and, and to you, it feels like it's it's a really beautiful place for us to be. Mm. And and um, hats off to the government for doing such a good job investing and reinvesting into these different public transport um, amenities. Mate, thank you so much for coming on the show. No problem at all. Honestly, it's great. I, I've been I've been really looking forward to having this conversation. So thank you for taking the time and flying all the way down here for the show. <laughs> you did it. But um, mate, we'll look forward to having a chat to you again soon. Happy to help. Thank, thank you, James. Cheers.